Uh, hello, this is Gary, and you're listening to Thinking Out Loud. Today's podcast recorded February 23rd, 2022. Wanted to uh, take a step back. Most of the podcasts have vented and ranted about the uh, Trump era. This will be more of the same warning. But on this one, I wanted to take a step back and go back to 2015. In 2015, then candidate, not even uh, nominate nominee yet of the Republican Party, just candidate Donald John Trump was really just host of The Apprentice. And you know, in 2015, what Donald Trump was was host of The Apprentice. He had gained some political notoriety for uh, saying racist stuff about Barack Obama prior to The Apprentice being a hit show that he was the host of. He had bankrupted his sixth company, and banks had stopped lending him money. Uh, he'd been famous as like a tabloid celebrity prior to that, mostly for bankrupting companies, cheating on his wives, and just kind of saying real vulgar and racist and sexist and inappropriate stuff on national TV. He once made sexually suggestive comments about his own daughter. He was just that kind of person. And in 2015, when he was a candidate, he declared himself a Republican. He had run as a Democrat and a Reformed Party candidate in the past. He'd run for president many times. That was another publicity stunt he liked to engage in every four years. But in 2015, he was still just the same old Donald John Trump. And then he gave a speech. And it was... It, he kind of summed it all up, and I think going back seven years now, it's been since he gave this speech, it's interesting to read it. Read it a few times and kind of recorded it, because it's such a, a nonsensical word salad of a speech. It, you know, the person who gave it was not well in the head at the time. Later, though, they they uh, received the nomination of pre to be president by the Republican Party and then went on to become president of the United States for four years. And it was after he gave the speech. I'm about to read here. I'm going to read it verbatim. It's just a portion of the speech. If you want to find the transcript of it, Google Trump nuclear speech 2015 and uh, you'll, you know, It'll, it'll pop up. You might have to scroll a little bit, but there's all kinds of transcripts on it. And if you need to see the video for yourself, that's on the YouTube and stuff too. Trump nuclear speech, 2015. Now, and also in, uh, I don't know, in more of a flavor of the actual verbatim words that I'm going to read, I'm not going to do like a Trump impersonation necessarily or anything like that. I'm going to read them in a in, I don't know, in a style that more sounds right, that the words on the page seem to be f coming from, or something, you know, like, anyway, so here we go, the Trump nuclear speech, 2015. Like, having nuclear... My uncle was a great professor and scientist and engineer, Dr. John Trump at MIT. Good genes. 
very good genes. Okay, very smart. The Wharton School of Finance, very good, very smart. You know, if you're a conservative Republican, if I were a liberal, if, like, okay, if I ran as a liberal Democrat, they would say I'm one of the smartest people anywhere in the world. It's true. But when you're a conservative Republican, they try, oh, do they do a number. That's why I always start off, went to Wharton, was a good student, went there, went there, did this, built a fortune. You know I have to give my light credentials all the time because we're a little disadvantaged. But you look at the nuclear deal, the thing that really bothers me, it would have been so easy, and it's not as important as these lives are. Nuclear is powerful. My uncle explained that to me many, many years ago. The power, and that was 35 years ago. He would explain the power of what's going to happen, and he was right. Who would have thought? But when you look at what's going on with the four prisoners, now it used to be three, now it's four. But when it was three, and even now, I would have said it's all in the messenger. Fellas, and it is fellas, because, you know, they don't. They haven't figured out that the women are smarter right now than the men. So, you know, it's going to take them about another 150 years. But the Persians are great negotiators. The Iranians are great negotiators. And so, and they, they just killed. They just killed them. Uh, now, what is that speech about? Um, has the word nuclear in it? I think he's describing the power of nuclear energy, I think. Not quite. It's all over the place. But I think, I think what happens to the, the mind of someone that embraces such narrow-minded things. It's like their mind almost literally becomes narrow to where it, it can only process things like 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 maybe two to three seconds at a time or something. And then it resets or something. I'm not sure. It's, um... I mean, I suppose reading a transcript of my own podcast, reading the way I I flow, there might be some interesting syntax there. But it certainly feels like when I'm speaking that each sentence flows on to the next one. And the thoughts are at least good paragraphs at a time that are connected together. The sentence I'm saying right now connects to the previous one, as it's a discussion of the flowing of thought. But that speech, and, and that was a speech that uh, Mr. Trump gave at a, you know, at, at a campaign stop. That was his vote for me to be president period of time. And people did. After he gave that speech, and that speech is really just the tip of the iceberg. He gave many more speeches like that when you actually, you know, read it 
loud aloud later and maybe you know, just take his characterization out of it and maybe put a different characterization it, it's it's kind of jarring on the senses you know because it's the person who gave that speech that it's what they were actually thinking at the time maybe they had some basic prepared notes they had some advisors around them. hey you should talk about these specific topics and that was like the best he could do at staying on course talking live so that's um it's a little jarring that that person went on to become president uh, it's pretty expected that the person who gave that particular speech and went on to become president didn't do a very good job as president you know that's what would you expect from a person who gave a speech like that live and then gave more speeches like it later? Extremely disjointed, uh, unintelligent, word salad nonsense. You know, people voted for it. You know, he was definitely a wild card. That's, that's for sure. It's a pure chaos theory. You don't, what is he going to do with his power? Thankfully, again, for our country, this is a kind of dim-witted and narcissistic and sociopathic as well that Donald Trump was. He was also quite lazy so and stupid. It's a pretty bad combo, but it's like if you're, if you're going to have an aspiring fascist, at least have them be lazy. So they, they don't actually... Vladimir Putin, unfortunately, is not lazy. He's uh, constantly looking for ways to gain more power. He's what Donald Trump wanted to be like. That's why Donald Trump is praising the actions of Vladimir Putin, finding various ways to give support to Putin, who's attempting to invade another country. Former Secretary of State... Mike Pompeo, a Trump sycophant, is praising the actions of Russia, attempting to invade a demo democratic society. You know, autocracy was invited into our government back in 2016, and it's still kind of lingering around. You know, it was technically illegal. That's the kind of funny thing. Although if they're voted in, then it's then it's this weird gray area. Well, they won the the right, quote unquote, to sort of take over the government. But running the government in a fascist way is not constitutional. You'd be, you know. So that's what Donald Trump and his his some of the people that were loyal to him within the government. That's what they're kind of facing now. You know, some of the actions that they were engaged in were unconstitutional. Even though they were voted in on a technicality, Donald Trump won the Electoral College in 2016, but he lost the popular vote by about 5 million. So he did not win the will of the people. The way we should elect president to the United States of America is that, uh, you know, the, the people of the, the United States of America who are registered to vote uh, should get to vote every four years in a presidential election. We should tally up all those votes of the people, and then the, the winner of that election should become president. Yep. 
But what if you live in Hawaii or Wyoming or Nebraska or Alaska, Iowa? Yeah. What if you're a military personnel and you're currently stationed overseas? Uh-huh. Yeah. So if you're an American citizen, you would vote. If you registered to vote. And then we would tally up all the votes. And then the person with the most votes would win. Yeah. Kind, kind of basic. And again, where you live, that, that's interesting. You know, I'm sure it's wonderful part of the country or part of the world if you're a military personnel stationed overseas. I, I myself lived in Japan for a few years as a kid because my parents were in the Navy. They still voted, you know, even though they were living in Japan at the time because they were, you know, working for the United States Navy. So, yeah, they still get to vote. How does the Electoral College work with military personnel? I'm not really sure. Um, how does that, because you got to win the Electoral College, but I guess it's the states that they're registered in, I guess. But they're not living there at the time. So why are they still a resident of that state? I don't know. Um, it's the whole, like, where you reside. That in certain, if you reside in a certain area, then your vote has, like, more value thing. It's really weird. Like, why does it matter where you live? Why should your vote have a greater value simply because you live in Wyoming as opposed to California? Like, whether you're a Democrat living in Wyoming or a Republican living in Wyoming, Democrat in California, Republican in California, whoever you are, wherever you live in, you get to vote. It doesn't matter where you live. Yeah, and, you, and your vote counts in the total, regardless of where you live. That's a good way to do it for the person that's going to represent the country. Tally up the total votes of all the people, and then that person becomes the president. Pretty simple, really. It's a little bit more of a simple system. Less cumbersome. Yeah. You know? So again, it, it would not matter where you live. Your vote would count. So, you're a Democrat living in Idaho? Yeah, your vote for president actually counts now. Yeah, because currently it doesn't. Yeah. If you're a Republican living in Washington State, my state, and you vote for president, currently, it doesn't count. Your vote does not count. Yeah, because you're the political minority. Washington state is a so-called blue state. Idaho, Washington's neighbor, is a red state. Okay, So if you're a Democrat living in Idaho, your vote does not count currently when voting for president. That, and that's the reality. That's what a red state means, or a blue state. It means if you are not that voting that way, your vote doesn't count. Sorry. No. The, the person who wins that state, quote-unquote, they get 100% of the electoral votes for that state. Maybe in some cases there might be, possibly, depending on the state, one or two electoral voters who will choose to not vote for the winner. And that's on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah. <laughs> Very weird. It, it, it's the electoral college is very stupid, very dumb, and uh, there's no justification for it. it. It needs to be abolished. Yeah, your vote should not have a greater value and a greater it, it be worth more <laughs> simply because you live in a certain part of the country. No, you're you're a citizen. You have one vote. 
Your one vote is one vote, and that's it. No more, no less. Okay, But the Electoral College, it, it gives greater value to some people's vote than other people's votes. You know. Meaning, a there's a certain number of electoral votes. You just divide that by the populace. That's what the like the, the value of the vote is. You know, and then in other states, much bigger populace, more electoral voters. But there's you know, the ratio of vote to voters is different for every state. You know, electoral voters representing citizens is different in every state. So that's why you have to have a pure vote when it comes to representing the country because you're representing the country. And the country is, yes, the land, but primarily, really, it's it's the people that are living in the country and, you know, serving in the military as well for our country, currently stationed overseas and such. So people registered to vote should be allowed to vote, and then um, you should tally up all the votes, and that person becomes the president in the presidential election. And that's That would be a far simpler system. we got to get rid of this nonsense where if you barely lose a state by a few thousand you can sort of claim fraud in that one or maybe a couple other states because you only lost by a few thousand even if the total vote the popular vote the national vote was a massive loss like you lost by millions but because you only lost some states by a few thousand you can sort of claim fraud without any evidence and but there will be like public officials engaged in actual time on the clock paid time to look into that kind of thing that you're claiming without any evidence and then months go by massive amounts of time and energy spent looking into the accusations of a famous con man you know how much time and energy was spent on the so-called voting scandal in 2020? You know, Donald Trump claimed fraud before he even lost. He knew he was going to lose. He's a wildly unpopular president. He's the guy that gave the Trump nuclear speech in 2015. I just read a little bit ago. A horribly incompetent person who had no business serving in, well, <laughs> in any capacity in government. None. No, he's unqualified. I understand he was quite wealthy and had his name on big, tall buildings, but yeah, those things were just given to him. He, he didn't earn them. I don't know how... I don't know where that came from, this idea that he worked hard to get where he is and stuff. Like, I don't... I don't even know... It's so confusing how that became part of his narrative. Um, but I think it's it's almost like we want to believe that because he's so, you know, obviously he has a very luxurious life. You know, he lives like a king. We want to think that he earned it. It makes us feel better or something, you know. We want to know that the people with the most extravagant kinds of lives are there because they're the best at what they do. He was literally the worst at what he did for several years running, literally. And that was the height of his fame. He was literally the worst at what he did for a living. Literally. People don't use the word literally correctly. Some, a lot over the last many years, and it's very frustrating. 
When I say he was literally the worst at what he did, you know, for a job, meaning in the real estate game, Donald Trump lost more money than any other American for several years running in the 1980s. Those are just the years that there's public tax records for that have been made available. Could it be that he was the worst real estate developer, i.e. losing more money in real estate than any other person in many other years as well? That's that's a pretty strong possibility. Yeah. He has hundreds of millions of dollars in personally guaranteed loans coming due. And it's unclear how much the assets that he does own are actually worth and what percentage he actually owns. You know, what is his true wealth? Did he really squander a $400 million inheritance? Like, um, that would, that would be a feat to somehow inherit, to inherit $400 million and then to somehow truly be like bankrupt, bankrupt, like legit individually bankrupt. That's, that's almost an accomplishment to have uh, Brewster's Millions, I've referenced it before. It's kind of an uh, underappreciated gem from the 1980s. Richard Pryor and John Candy. Richard Pryor inherits a million, but he has the chance to inherit a shit ton more money if he can, what is it? He has to, like, burn through, I think it's a million dollars in, like, 30 days or a certain period of time. And if he can go zero to his name at the end of the stretch of time, then he will inherit the full $100 million. But he can't have a penny to his name, at the, and he has to start with a million. And he finds it's actually very difficult, because as you spend those kind of big, massive sums, you end up spending it on stuff that has value, you know. So if you have $400 million, a lot of the stuff he has, at least some ownership stake in, they, they are certainly have some kind of value, even if they're losing hundreds of millions of dollars a year, the, the entity, not him personally, necessarily. It's like his golf course and stuff. That's a golf course. You know, it's real estate. You know, it's a thing. So even if he's personally bankrupt, those things can be sold off for some kind of cash at some point. But if you somehow inherit $400 million and then at the end of your life you are somehow zero to your name, and it's not because you invested in a bunch of philanthropic endeavors and you donated your money. It's just because you squandered it. That's that's embarrassing, you, you know. That's there's not really any excuse for it. And again, I've been a broken record on this podcast a lot with fixed annuities, but uh, I think it's just my brief time as a financial advisor shortly after college that it, a lot of the stuff is kind of basic. One of the reasons I didn't last too long as a financial advisor is because I personally didn't have any money tons of money and then so I didn't really know too many people who already had money and that's kind of what financial advisors do if you don't really have money to invest there's not really a whole lot they can do for you you know they you need to go to a bank first and just start putting money into account you know and then you know 401k IRA basic stuff like that you can just take the little bits out of your check each month once you get a few grand going then you could start setting up a an account that an advisor can actually manage for you and start setting some stuff up for future planning. But, you know, to get you really going, a lot of times, if there wasn't anything to roll over, there wasn't really much for us to really do yet. 
you know, wasn't really much money in it yet. But fixed annuities, that's the easiest bit of advice for people that come up, come across lump sums, 400 million, especially, at least several, couple hundred million of it in a basic fixed annuity, even if it's just, you know, three, four, five percent, something that can pay you a very comfortable salary of, say, you know, one or two, three, four million a year forever in virtually tax-free income. Yeah pretty easy. So most likely Donald Trump will never be individually bankrupt. I would, as proud and as arrogant as he is, I'm sure there's some stuff that he probably doesn't even know where the money comes from and stuff that was taken care of long before by his father, certain trust funds and things that vested in certain things that's just virtually guaranteed, you know, maintenance of luxurious lifestyle regardless of how often he fucks up. It doesn't really matter. If you inherit $400 million, you, you do not have to ever work, obviously. Uh, can you live like a king? Yes. Yeah. You can spend single-digit million dollars a year in living expenses that are unreimbursed or unsellable later. You know, just pure, like, Traveling, eating out, all that kind of stuff. Pure just living cost of six to seven million a year. And yeah, the money will never run out. So, yeah, you yeah. So you can just spend your your entire life just traveling around, having fun, doing whatever the heck you want. Now, ideally, you know, Donald Trump could have been a person who devoted his life to public service and stuff with all that money. There, there are people from prestigious families that have done such things, you know, and went in a different direction with all the money. They had all the money that you can ever want, so they devoted their life to other things. See that a lot with like movie stars and pro athletes and stuff. Once once they already have all the money they can get and even early in their careers, take care of some certain stuff. Meet with your wealth advisor to make sure certain things are taken care of, certain stresses are alleviated forever. Yeah. And generational type stuff. Yeah. Do you think uh, LeBron James's great-great-grandchildren are taken care of? Yes. Yes, they are. They haven't even been born yet. But they're going to make sh- he's made sure that they're going to get to go to college and such. Guaranteed. Yeah, of course. That's all taken care of. That's what you do if you start from extremely humble beginnings. And then you come across massive, massive, you know, transcendental wealth in the hundreds of millions. It doesn't even matter if he ever becomes a billionaire. You know, he can make certain things guaranteed to where, you know, is there going to be a higher percentage of children from inner city Akron that are going to go off to college and get college degrees and then have good, skilled careers? Yes. Is that directly related to LeBron James's investment? Yes. Does Donald Trump have similar types of investments? No. No, he does not. You know. But LeBron James is just a basketball player. But is he a better human? Yes. Yeah. Far, far better. You know. He was given certain talents and he used those talents to not elevate himself, but people around him. You know. To elevate his community. Donald Trump started at an elevated status. You know, his talent was that he was born wealthy. And then he used that wealth that he was born with, that talent, 
you will, to just accrue more wealth. And a lot of times by means of exploiting people who had less wealth, by just sort of taking what he could from them, forcing them to lose when there was completely unnecessary for him to do so. Could he still have retained a profit with the could he have had a profitable casino in Atlantic City? Yeah, he certainly should have. With the amount of money invested in and the, the idea itself seems cool enough. The Taj Mahal kind of, you know, I don't know. I thought it was a little, I mean, you know, like the, the Vegas one with the Paris, 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 or what? what is it? The one in... I think that's what it's called. Or the New York, New York. There's, there's the one in Vegas that has the, the mini Eiffel Tower and stuff. But something about the kind of a casino that's made to look like the Taj Mahal. I, would, I don't know. That was a little off-putting in the early 90s. But nonetheless, it was a casino in Atlantic City. But the main reason that one went bankrupt is because there was various money laundering practices going on there and a mismanaging of money, you know, which is a pretty common theme with the Trump thing. We're there, I started doing this podcast originally, like, early on in the corona thing. It's been, been doing about a year. And I think the Trump thing's still going on. I think this whole time... Trump started gaining popularity several years ago, right around the time of the Trump nuclear speech. It was really starting to build steam. Somehow that Trump nuclear speech didn't deflate the whole thing, like, instantly. It, it like, added fuel to the gas of the fire. Weird. But the whole time, but this kept thinking that any, any minute now, any day now, it'll just dissipate. It'll just... The next thing that's revealed about him will be the thing that is the straw that broke the camel's back type of thing. It'll it'll be the oh gee you did that you know and it'll finally be the the sheer volume of shit will just compel people to turn away at some point. You're like it's bound to happen any day now any day now. I've been honestly thinking that well for decades now. <laughs> You know, because uh, it did happen before in the late 90s. He finally disappeared. You know, he was such a, such a schmuck. You know, it was just such a, this ass, arrogant asshole, wealthy white guy, racist, sexist, who just lingered around in the pub, public eye. But in the late 90s, after his sixth bankruptcy, U.S. banks stopped lending him money, and he was done. He, he, was, he was a has-been. The gig was up. The world was aware that he was a con man. At least U.S. banking institutions were aware. But then uh, then he became the host of a game show. And then the Such Bank, a bank that's had various uh, ethical issues over the years, and, and various fines and such for unethical business practices, they lent Donald Trump a m- bunch of money, and he had a, a rebirth Nearly 2000s, and then, uh, and then in 2015, he gave an absurd speech 
And then a year after that, he, a little over a year after that, he, he was voted president. And then, you know, I mean, you know, there was a vote. The people voted. They voted for Hillary Clinton. And then a month after that, the Electoral College met, and they voted for Donald John Trump. The, the reality is that is what happened in 2016. In 2016, there was a vote. The people voted, and then Hillary Clinton won. A month later, the Electoral College vote is, voters met in various states across the country, all 50 states, and they decided that Donald Trump was the winner. When the news announced Donald Trump the winner on election night 2016, technically he wasn't the winner yet. Well, he won those states, and therefore if you add up all the numbers, that's the Electoral College voters are the ones who vote. He doesn't automatically get those votes until they actually meet and vote. So in 2016, the voters voted, the people voted in the election, Hillary Clinton won. That's just a fact. That is a, an historical fact. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in 2016. On election night, when the people voted, the people, they voted for Hillary Clinton. The people did. Yes, they did. That's who they voted for. Later, weeks later, there was time passed after that night. A separate group of people, known as the Electoral College voters, which specific voters voted in each specific state depended on who, quote-unquote, won the state, Hillary or Donald Trump. If Donald Trump won, then a certain group of voters would vote in the Electoral College vote a month or so after election night. And if Hillary Clinton had won that state, quote-unquote, then her voters would get to vote in that particular Electoral College vote a month or so after the election night. That's when it actually became official. And it was kind of a, there was some sort of kind of buildup, like, oh, the electoral, and it could have been more. The media didn't, they have to stay impartial, though. And they, so they can't purely just state facts, clear and unequivocally. They kind of, kind of, because you also have to appease, you know, the corporate execs that own their station and such. You got to present things in a certain way. Donald Trump didn't truly win the election, quote unquote, until the Electoral College was confirmed a month after the election night. But they certainly didn't have to do that. They certainly could have gone with the will of the people, especially when it's a five million vote difference. You know, the person who lost the vote by five million is who the Electoral College picked. They ignored the will of the people and voted for Donald Trump. That's that's what happened. Electoral College is stupid. There's not really any justification for it. It needs to be abolished uh, so we can start avoiding these kinds of things in, in the future. The Republican Party already relies enough on the unequal, equal balance thing. You know, every state gets two senators regardless of how many people live there. Wyoming, Idaho, Montana... Two state, two senators apiece. California, two as well. More people in California, probably in Los Angeles, than there is in Idaho, Montana, and uh, Wyoming combined. Just the one 
Seattle or the LA metropolis in California. Just you know, talking tens of millions of people. But so the Republican Party already relies on that. They have a certain percentage control of the Senate, but they're the percentage of people nationwide who vote for them is far less than the percentage that's in, represented in the Senate. But they kind of rely on that. So I think it's going to be Trump nuclear speech. Actually, I don't want to read it again. I've read it a few times over the years, and I, reading it at the beginning of this, I think that was enough. That man went on to become president. A year after he lost the election, he's still around, he's still in the news, and there still is, the organization that picked him is still, by and large, enthusiastically supportive of him. The people that were loyal to him are now praising Russia for their preparing to invade our ally, Ukraine. So the stench of the Trump era lingers. I'm, I'm hoping that it that it that goes away soon, but it's it's definitely still around, and, and it's it's a bad stench, you know. It's definitely still lingering, because there's people that are boastful and still proud of their support of Trump. It's it's embarrassing, you know. He he needs to go away. He needs to start facing some consequences. Um, media just has to stop airing interviews with him and stuff, especially mainstream. If Fox News wants to have him on their show and whatever, but CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, Fox, all that, oh, I mean the other ones, they gotta start moving on from that guy. Start embracing more uh, positive, obvious things. So yeah, again, when it comes time to vote, make sure when you're voting, you vote for candidates who are pro-hospitals and schools, and ideally a pro-freedom dividend, universal basic income, what, however you want to call it. Our society can easily afford such things. Yeah. They're, they're, we can barely, pretty easily, trim a little fat off the top, and it'll be more than enough to cover foundational type stuff, and that fat on the top there will still be plenty of fat. Yeah. In, in other words, if you have hospitals and schools, it does not mean socialism where every single person makes the exact same amount of money. Nope. Sorry. No. That's not what it is. It, I don't know where the confusion comes in in that. Because we already have hospitals and schools. You know, There are ways to fund those kind of things directly. You know, you know. It's not like the only way to do it is to have a for-profit entity in the in between people and hospital. Like that, that's not the only way to do it, because that way is extremely inefficient. You know, a lower-income person with decent grades, but not awesome grades, not enough to get a scholarship, but good enough to be accepted to university. Let's make that happen, <laughs> type of thing, you, you know. Um, the current system is, if that lower income person wants to go to 
university that they've been accepted to, they're going to have to borrow money from a for-profit middle person, a banking institution, college loan lender. They'll charge interest and such, and that's how they make their money. So they're going to charge, because the, the school's going to charge you tuition and books and all that kind of stuff. you got to pay for that out of pocket, but you're lower income. So the whole point of charging you money is to kind of keep it more exclusive so that people who don't have money tend to not go. That way wealthy people don't have to interact as much with poor people. That's kind of the purpose of it. Yeah, because if you charge $10,000 for tuition, wealthy people don't have any problem paying that. That's virtually nothing. Yeah, but sometimes that's kind of the thing too. That's why a lot of wealthy people go to a private school that might be $100,000 a year because then it makes it even more exclusive. There's going to be even fewer poor people going there and then they don't have to interact with like anyone who's poor. But if the tuition's 10000 there might be some people that are kind of poor going there. They got scholarships or they borrowed money to go there. So, you know, if you're a wealthy person going to a school that's only costing 10000 a year, yeah, you might be interacting with some poor folk while you're going to school there. So if you're not comfortable with that, you should just be made aware of that. That would be kind of the, one of the things with making public education an investment that our society makes more directly. There will be more of a mingling of like wealthy kids and poor kids at school. Yeah, at universities and stuff. Yeah, because there will be like the poor kid who, like me, from a pretty modest working class family, didn't get awesome grades, but on a roll last couple of years, you know, got some, went to community college for a little bit. I was accepted to a four-year university, you know, so, yeah. So I was there, and I certainly knew kids while in college who were from far more wealthy families than I, you know, so that's kind of part of the thing with college, you know, it's a, it can be kind of a melting pot, you know, all kinds of socioeconomic standings there. But that just gets even more opened up once you eliminate the well the, the monetary barrier. You know, if you want to learn more, you gotta start shelling out dough. Why? <laughs> um, how about we just fund the school directly? And then that school can come up with other various means to generate revenue, like having a um, you know, a really good basketball team or football team that they charge people tickets for admission and stuff or whatever. Or, or you can have some sort of, maybe your football team has nationally televised games and stuff. And there's a lot of money generated there. Um, I mean, if your university is paying $5 million a year to, to get to the guy that's coaching your football team, I'm not really sure why you're charging people to go to your school, you know. Why do, why do people who, poor people who want to earn an education have to pay money to go to your institution, but then you're going to use that money to pay your football coach? Do the players get paid? <laughs> um, it, it's kind of weird. It's a weird system, but it's just like tradition or something. To Certain people will get to go to college for free. Some will not. And it'll be purely, you know, based off kind of your economic standing and stuff. 
a lot of times, or your athletic ability. You know, if you're really good at sports, really amazing, you can go to college for free. Sometimes even if you're not really that, even that great of a student. But ideally, you'll be a great student, too. Stanford does not give athletic scholarships. It's important to remember that when you ever uh, hear about a professional athlete, professional football player, whenever you have a certain perception of them as an athlete or as a person, if they have Stanford University as their alma mater, Stanford does not give athletic scholarships. So you, you got to always get a little frustrating some of the terms that people use for like certain football players and stuff, like Richard Sherman and stuff. He went to Stanford. You know, the guy's a bright guy. I mean, you know, Stanford doesn't just, you don't get to go to Stanford just because you're really good at football, you know, like, that that's not good enough. You know, you, you have to be a good student and highly intelligent to get into Stanford. So, but this weird thing that a lot of media does where it's like, because you're good at sports, they just, they have to assume that you're, that that's all you're good at or something very uh, stupid have to find a way to not have that kind of crap anymore and I think one way is you know public education just allowing where you know maybe you're a really good athlete and you could get the athletic scholarship and maybe you just or that, that'll like because that's the way athletic scholarships would work in the future where there's public education is the athletic scholarship would still continue. It has a certain value. But now instead of covering tuition, it will be a living allowance. Yeah. Yeah. Being a f college football player is a full-time job. That That's your job. You know, I ran track in college. I wouldn't say it was more like a part-time job. You know, between meets and practice, you know, but... Track and cross-country practices, you know, an hour or two or so a day. Maybe a two-mile jog in the morning a few times a week. Total commitment, 15 to 20 hours a week. But college football players, especially the D1 level, that's way more than that time commitment. I mean, it's, it is a job. You know, the fact that they just, well, you get to go to school for free. That's what should be free anyway. It's a publicly funded university, you know should already be free. So there, there should be a basic living allowance, you know? And I think uh, people in college shouldn't just be treated like children. Even though when I was in college, I was young. I was fresh out of, I still felt like a kid. Uh, legally an adult, and you should be treated like one, you know? It's like, you're, there's a certain amount of mandatory hours that you need to stay a part of this particular thing, I don't know, it just seems like there should be some kind of allowance for that. Monetary compensation of some kind. Walking around money. It should be pretty standard. It should just, just seems like the right thing to do. And for all the sports. You know? Devoting a certain amount of time, energy to a thing. That's time and energy that you're not able to have working a job. Plenty of people in college that have jobs, but if you're an athlete, your job is to be an athlete. That's your job. So you're sacrificing money. But many of them will never make become professionals in the particular sport they're competing in. I certainly didn't. 
But I remember for uh, road meets, we did get like a food allowance when we went on road meets. So what's the difference between that and the living allowance? Especially for, it should be kind of like time-based, I think, for like certain sports that require a certain time commitment. You know, especially football. It's, you're, you're talking 30, 40 hours a week. Between film study and all the various weight training and practices, games that are, you know, if it's a road game, it's, you know, they might be f flying somewhere and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's like, it's, uh, it's quite the time commitment. You need to get a basic living allowance for that, you know? People should have money in their pocket. Like, especially, you know, our country doesn't have a universal basic income. It's like the, the idea that, uh, it's just, it's just strange. It's a strange system. Like, you could be, it's like because you're, the thing that you're really amazing at is, is a particular sport, but maybe you're also, like, really smart. You were, like, required to be poor for four years in the prime of your life. Very strange, you know. I don't know why it's. But there's, uh, you know, starting to be the breakthroughs, like name, image, and likeness, that kind of stuff. That's cool. But it needs to be more stuff, too, where, you know, athletes that are devoting a intense amount of time to a particular thing are able to have just some walking around money while they're young and in college and out of their hometown for the first time ever, maybe. Anyway. So when you vote, make sure you vote for candidates that are pro-education and healthcare, meaning public universities, public schools. We, there's the monies that we're raising, paying in taxes are going towards those kind of things: schools, hospitals, basic infrastructure. Basic infrastructure means the roads that we drive over, the bridge we drip, bridges and stuff, the railways, you know, that kind of real nuts and bolts basic kind of stuff. Make sure they're not worrying about. Cutting taxes for wealthy people. Don't vote for candidates that are planning on cutting taxes for the wealthy. The wealthy don't ever need a tax cut. Ever. They're fine. They'll be okay. So don't vote for those kind of candidates. Vote for candidates that are pro-health care, pro-education, and have ways to pay for it that doesn't require raising the taxes on you know, the, the bottom 70%. It's not really any reason for it. There's exorbitant amounts of money pooling up at the top 2%. So that's where you start, obviously. That's where you start. The exclusive taxes, marginal, wealth, estate of the people who have exorbitant amounts of money. The reason being, because it causes them zero hardship. They don't, it's only a bruising of their ego. But they still get to maintain the lifestyles that they've become accustomed to. Their net worth is just not as much. That's it. That, that's the only that's the only negative for them. They get a slightly bruised ego because their net worth is not as much as it used to be. Possibly. That's that's only short term. Their net worth in the long term may still indeed go up because the value of the entities that they own may go up because the people that work there are more healthy and productive and educated. Who knows? But yes, if there is more of an investment in healthcare and education, maybe there is a, a wider, robust range of small businesses and less of a reliance on the corporate empire, which of course is the reason the Republican Party is against health care and education, because their constituency are big, massive, multinational corporations, 
and the wealthy people who own them. That is their constituency. That is their primary objective is protecting that group's interests. And there are also some in the Democratic Party whose primary interests are those folks as well. The only difference is the rhetoric. You know, that's really the only true difference. Corporate Democrats. Joe Manchin, you know, he's, he's your classic example of this. Has a D next to his name, but he's very much primarily focused on protecting those very specific types of people. Multinational corporations, big, highly polluting types of in industries, in his specific case, West Virginia Coal, and then, you know, the people who own those entities. In, him, in his case, him specifically. You know, his family owns certain coal investments, and so that's why he votes a certain way to protect his family's investments so they can continue to make money a very particular way. What are the effects on the people of West Virginia? Why would he give a fuck? He doesn't really view that as being his job. His job is to help the coal industry. Yeah. But he's got a D next to his name. So vote for candidates that understand the implications of climate change and all that kind of stuff. It is real. It, it's inconvenient. But it, it is real. Burning coal obviously ha has a negative effect. Can't just keep doing that forever. Obviously, we need to find a, a better way. Obviously. So, a candidate that's like, we need to keep burning coal for hundreds of more years. Don't vote for that one. Because they're aloof and they're not paying attention. If they say we can't afford hospitals and schools, don't vote for them. That, that, that's not the one that, that's going to represent your interests. You know, they say they're pro-life, and and then when they when clarified, you learn that what that means to them is they want to make certain medical procedures illegal. Well, that doesn't really mean they're pro-life. Are they pro-health care, pro-education? You know, pre-K, daycare. Investments, those those kind of things that help improve life. If they're not for those things, then they're not really pro-life. They're more anti-certain medical procedures, because yeah, that's not really, you know, that's not really pro-life. They're kind of distorting that term in order for you to vote for them, so that they can cut taxes for the wealthy and corporations. So. Vote for your own interests, you know. Vote for candidates that are going to protect your interests and people like you. And, and, and less so what, what, what you think the role of government should be, but how do you survive in this world? What do you have to do to make ends meet? Okay. What is the candidate X talking about, and what have they done in the past legislatively, specifically, that affects your day-to-day -day life? How does it improve or hinder it? You know, those are really the things to think about when voting for a candidate. So, oh, it's getting nice out. Maybe it'll warm up a bit today, which means I'll probably be working later, digging holes for fence posts. Fun with my bachelor's degree. So anyway, stay safe out there.
Make sure you register to vote and vaccinated. God bless. This is Gary. Thinking out loud.